The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is Brian. You'll hear that during the course of this interview, which we did today, uh, Hayes Carl told me that Guy Clark passed away today. I'm sure Guy was way more significant even to, to Hayes, as, as Hayes talks about, as an influence as a songwriter. But as an artist, Guy's had an extraordinary influence uh, on my life, too. I've, I've talked about him in many podcasts, and uh, simply one of the greatest songwriters who ever lived. If you don't know, his music start with the album Old Number One. But even in the last couple of years, songs like Hemingway's Whiskey and the guitar are really I- incredible. And uh, so this one's for Guy Clark, uh, this conversation. Um, and also at the at the end of the conversation that Hayes and I have, I ask him to play a song, and he says he will. I think though that in case some of you don't know his music, I'd I'd rather start the show off with it. So uh, this is a great song, and his album "Lovers and Leavers" is a great album. So this is Hayes Carl, and he's playing a song called uh, "Sake of the Song." Enjoy it, and uh, raise a glass of your favorite whiskey to the great Guy Clark. Uh, this is called For the Sake of the Song. We stole, we stole a Towns Van Zandt title for it, but uh, you can't copyright a title. So. Hey, if you're nobody's business or your front page news Folk, rock, country, on Delta Blues I Tell your truth however you choose And do it all for the sake of the song Yeah, hitchhike and bus ride and rental cars Living rooms, coffee houses, run-down bars Ten thousand people alone under the stars It's all for the sake of the song And there's the man who wrote your cheating heart Now he's lying through his tooth And he plays it on a stolen harp That's soaked in hundred proof there's the one who might be happy But for the writer's curse And she lost the crowd's attention By the 42nd verse It's a traveling salesman It's the girl next door From the empty room to the third encore Less is less until more is more And it's all for the sake of the song And there's the young man on the marquee Yeah, he's the son of some well-known And his father bought the tour bus So he could strike out on his own And there's the brooding contradiction Yeah, he's holding Van Gogh's ear And he's taped it 
Unto his guitar in hopes someone will hear It's black berets and nudie suits The next big thing or getting back to your roots High tops, flannels, or duct tape boots And it's all for the sake of the song And there's the mystic, and there's the legend, and there's the best it's ever been. And there's the voice of a generation of who won't pass this way again. And there's record deals, and train seals, and puppets on a string. And we're all just trying. To figure out what makes the cage bird sing. <laughs> it's lights, camera, on with the show. A lifetime to get ready. Now go, cat, go. Where it all ends, nobody knows. But it's all for the sake of the song. So if you're nobody's business or your front page news, folk, rock, country, or delta blues, tell your truth however you choose and do it all for the sake of the song. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, this is a treat. This is going to be really fun. I have the great songwriter and singer, Hayes Carl, here. And uh, Hayes and I met backstage at a Jason Isbell show. I think Amanda or Amanda, Jason's wife, who's this incredible songwriter, or Tracy or someone was like, hey, you guys should podcast together. We were like, oh, okay. Yeah, I think it was Tracy. Was it maybe it was, she was Tracy. She was my first publicist 14 years ago, and, and she, she met- still works you know, still helps me out here and there. And uh, just, I think she introduced us. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember, I'll say, um, right. It was Tracy and I, who manages Jason. And I had heard this one song from your, your record, which is why I said, Oh yeah, that sounds good to do. But I'd only heard the one song. And I remember walking out that night and being like, what if I don't like the guy's (laughs) because <laughs> you hadn't made an album in a really It wasn't long. a full commitment. You know, it was an introduction. I was, I was no, hoping, but... Uh. No, but but the thing is, um, man, I went home and started listening to the album, which came out, I guess, a couple weeks later. And one of the, like, central questions of this show in general, like, the reason I started doing this show was I'm fascinated by what I call, like, inflection points, like, moments where an artist, a creative person, has it all on on the line, like um, where they're risking inc- great failure and chasing a certain kind of success. And most of us go through these lives doing the arts and, and we don't often hit them. But in listening to this album, I, I can feel that this was everything for you. Hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering, and I, the question I, I always wonder is like, do people know? I mean, this album is a staggeringly great album. The songs are... I mean, you did it, right? The songs are stunning. And um, I want to talk a lot about how you did it. But were you aware 
as you were making this record that you were doing something on a level way beyond anything you'd done before? Well, I, I, I was aware that I was very much out of my comfort zone and that was intentional. How it was going to land, I was I had no idea and I was pretty worried about, you know, as, as you are when you get out of that place. Um, I had been, you know, kind of consistently doing something that I, I felt like I'd been pushing myself through my career, but it had always, uh, I, I was just in a different place in my life creatively and when I went in to make this record, uh, I just I just knew that I couldn't rely on the same things, tricks, styles, strengths that I had in the past, and and so it, yeah, I felt really vulnerable going into it, and it was a, it was a scary process, but a really rewarding one. Well, it seems you said a couple of things, and I'm interested in there about not knowing how how it, how it land, which isn't really even the fact that you sort of powered through, regardless. But it seems to me as I listen to the album. All your other albums really showcased how smart you are. Smart, well-read, aware, really gifted with language. And then this album seemed like, there have always been songs on your albums that your heart was really engaged in, but it seemed like on this record, you were really prepared to use that, those intellectual gifts in service of something way deeper. Yeah, in the in the past, I think my life was was different. I was a young guy who just had this dream of, being on the road, of being in bars, of hanging out with these characters and having these life experiences. And I always looked at it like I joined the circus and, and, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I loved every shitty dive, every, you know, wacko promoter or crazy fan or all these stories that I felt like I was building my life story. And it was fascinating to me and it was invigorating and, and exciting. And my music was about a lot of those experiences, and it was about the people that I met and what I was going through at that time, and 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 was telling stories uh, of the people that I met, and and I did have, you know, I would put in my own kind of, uh, you know, highs and lows uh, in there, but I was using other characters, I was using humor. So um, you were you leaning on the humor heavy? Yeah, yeah, which and, is a great thing. I, but it's a distancing thing sometimes. It also. is. It is, and I, I realized that it was it was a distancing thing, and and I always looked at it like for me it was a great way to relay a point or an emotion or set people up. For, you know, it was the it was the body blows before the knockout punch, and I always liked the idea whether as a live performer or as a recording artist that idea of being able to make people laugh and then to make them cry and to get that range of emotion and, and to use humor as a tool to, to get a point across, whether it's political or, or, or emotional. And I always found that worked for me. I was drawn to it and, and other writers, you know, uh, Todd Snyder, or John Prine, or Lyle Lovett, Randy Newman. It's a long list of guys, but I, I, I liked that, that cleverness. And I always, I was kind of couched, what I was really feeling or going through either with the humor or by using other characters. And I would put in, you know, here's a song about something in my life, but then, you know, really quickly, you know, change the, uh, move the target and say, oh, okay, well look over here. My, my fear, I think, and I think I had insecurities as a performer and as a recording artist that I didn't want to be too maudlin. I didn't want to be too serious. I didn't want people to really think I felt this way. And, and, you know, I was insecure as a writer and as a human. I was scared to kind of put it all out there. And so I thought if I could be clever and then slip in my sort of serious moments that, that 
there would be something for everybody. Well, yeah, those and, songs are there. The song Leanne Womack covered is one of those songs. That's right. It's an emotional song. Right. But when I hear you talk about the, the fear of doing this, and also I would say, like, those artists you named are all great. Like, they're so, their worldview is so consistently dark that they, they almost have to use humor. And there's always a little bit of hope in your stuff. So it, it, it's a slightly different target in a yeah. way that you were going for things. But this album, man, like one of the things that really separates it from everything else I've heard lately, it's one of the most intimate albums I've like ever heard, I think. I mean, there's only you and the listener, it feels like. I'm sure that was deliberate, but that's incredibly risky. I mean, it, it made me think of Closing Time, the Tom Waits album, yeah, and um, parts of Old Number One, and like the second side of the second Springsteen album, like these really not references that people people throw a guy Clark at you, but the Tom Waits thing. I read a bunch about you, and I don't hear people bring up Tom Waits, but those early Tom Waits albums, particularly Closing Time, I I feel a real kinship. Hmm. Uh, with you in the in the sort of lilting sadness that's throughout the album. <laughs> well, it was it was definitely intentional to make it an intimate record and and hopefully listening experience. And that was that was scary too for me. It, it was you know we, we decided to just strip it down to the songs, and that was going to be the focus. And that may sound odd to people like, well, the focus is the songs. Of course it is. But you know, usually you get in, and and what I find can happen in the recording situation is. You know, you have the song, but then, well, here's the bass line and here's your drum track and then we'll have a guitar solo here. And I don't think there's a solo on this whole record and there's pedal steel on two songs and the rest of it's just my acoustic. And, and then we had this great rhythm section that was playing completely to me. And, and by that, I mean, a lot of times you'll, you'll record a song and then they'll say, well, that was, that was great, and we'll keep this and that, and then the drummer will come in and overdub his part, or the bass player will come in and overdub his part. There was one song on this record that I hadn't finished. Uh, it was called Jealous Moon, and I was scribbling away to the last minute. The band, we were on our last day, and uh, they were going to have to go home, and, and so we recorded sort of a, a scratch vocal where I was just making up lyrics, and we got done, and, and, and I said, well, okay, that, that sounded great. These guys sounded great. And they can go home. I was talking to the producer, Joe Henry. Yeah. So they can go home and, and I'll finish these lyrics and come back and sing them. And everybody in the room just looked at me like I was insane. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? We can't do that. And I didn't understand at first why. And then I, they said, well, we're playing to you, man. Like, oh, that's awesome. and, and, and I'd never had an experience. I mean, I've had great musicians. I've been blessed to play with great guys and have great producers. But I'd never had something where it was every breath, every moment they were watching me. And so I went in and if I pause a millisecond, you know, the percussionist, this guy named Jay Bellarose was, you know, he was waiting and everything he was accentuating was on top of my vocal or with it and, and was giving it a push and a lift. And so it wasn't like I could just come in and sing on top of that one thing because that was a really unique performance that was unique to what I had done at that time. In that time. moment, as you sang the song through that time. Right. So I had to finish that song and go in and, and yeah. do it all of them together. That's how Bob Dylan made those albums, right? I mean, if you read about how he made Blood on the Tracks, he made it that way. Yeah. There's this great, I don't know if you've ever read this book, there's a great book about how he tried to make Blood on the Tracks. Once. In Minnesota? Yeah. yeah never, I love that. I love I, I, that, that the whole thing. Like, I didn't even know he had a brother and that his brother's role in that and whole deal. And Blood on the Takes, you've heard that other album. Yeah. It's Blood on the Takes, the, yeah. the bootleg or whatever, but you can really feel them going through that process. Yeah. And, 
this album really does feel like yours, Lovers and Leavers. Like it's in a line with that stuff. Uh, even the way that your voice, the whatever microphone you used, whatever vocal treatment there is, you're telling us these stories and you're really revealing something about yourself. And I imagine that also was scary. <laughs> yeah, it was just, uh, there was nothing to hide behind. And which is exactly what I needed and what I wanted to do. I was glad to have Joe Henry there to remind me of that and not have some producer who was saying, well, was worried about radio play or sales. Joe was a great songwriter in his own right. Amazing songwriter and, and, and a poet and, and um, just someone that I love to hear discuss music and art. And that was kind of what I was drawn to him. I started listening to his interviews. I just loved the way he articulated his, his views and, I was drawn to that, and I thought, this is a guy that his only concern will be bringing these songs to life in, in the purest way possible. Well, yeah, the first song I connected to on the on the album was Sake of the Songs, as mm-hmm. you were talking about doing things for the sake of the songs. And to me, that's a song, uh, it's about the thing you were talking about before, about how you were determined to set out and live this life and have these experiences, and that sort of, this myth, in a way, that artists tell themselves... I mean, I was thinking about um, William Burroughs' book, Junkie, and how he set out to be a junkie in a mm-hmm. very deliberate way in order to live that life and have right. that experience. And I do feel like a kinship to that or Basketball Diaries are these stories of people who intentionally throw themselves into it, but often those people don't come out and then have the perspective on it. What do you think enabled you to sort of get to where you get by by the end of it? Because, it, it, I mean, in a, in a way, good while it lasted – and you leave alone, kind of answer sake of the songs. It's one of the great things about this record is it's an actual record. It's an a record that's sequenced in a very particular way, it feels like. It um, was. Yeah, and in narratively, too, it, it does feel like there's, uh, it's not a strictly narrative journey where the character goes from A to B to C, but it does feel like you're asking certain questions and answering them. Yeah, and I, I feel like I was, I mean, in, in my in my life, not all of these songs are autobiographical, but there certainly were more than on previous records. And and part of that process was therapeutic for me. I was figuring out my divorce and what went wrong in my relationship and who I was and what I had been. And it was interesting for me that the songwriting process helped me figure that out. I had never done that before. And 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 that a lot of people do. I mean, Todd Snyder is one of my favorite songwriters and most interesting human beings I've ever met. And he has this quote, he always says at his shows, he says, I write these songs not to change anybody's mind, but to ease my own. And I always loved that quote. And I thought, well, that, what a brilliant thing to say. And it does not relate to me at all. <laughs> That's what you used to think. Yeah. That makes, that, you mean you weren't using your, your songs in a therapeutic way? You weren't asking yourself questions when, when you'd write? It was really all just kind of coming from the brain? Not- it was observational. It was coming from the heart. It was stream of conscious. It was, it was a lot of things. But it was not self-examination. It was not working through issues. It was, it was sort of trying to be a sponge and take in what I saw around me and find the pulse of something or find a character and find some kind of commonality that I could sing about. And it was, it was very observational, but without the, without the next level of thought in it. I was trying to find this, the home run chorus or the, the universal thing, but just by, chance and luck i think without the actual work and that worked for me to a degree well, you had a lot of success at it i had some success with it 
But when I really looked in the mirror and said, what are you writing about? I'm not sure I could answer that question in the past. And and so there was a little part of me that felt uh, like a fraud, I think, because I was like, let me try this and let me try that. And, and then people say, oh, I like that. And, and I liked it, too. It's not like I you know, didn't like my own work. It was just coming from a different place than it at that point in my life than it than it did on this record. What, you know, so what made that turn happen, do you think? Do you remember picking up a guitar and, and writing? What was the first song you wrote that ended up on this album? Uh, the Magic Kid. Oh, sure, which is, uh, I think you've said it's about your son. It's about my son, Eli, who is a, uh, an aspiring magician. Yeah, it's Actually a, a working magician. Oh, an actual magician. Yeah. Yeah. You say there's no trick you can't learn, right, in the song. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but that was your way in, by writing something that personal. It's a very touching, great song about hope and being an artist and all that stuff, but... So where were you? What made you write that song? Well, I wrote it with uh, a guy named Daryl Scott, who's one of my favorite songwriters. Uh, if people don't know uh, Daryl, a buddy of mine when we were in college, who didn't go, a high school buddy, sent me Daryl's homemade demo of Uncle Lloyd. Oh, wow. In 1986. Oh, incredible. And if people don't know Uncle Lloyd or... Long uh, Time Gone. Yeah, man uh, who played bass for Sha these old... Oh, yeah. Records of Daryl's. Yeah, uh, he's a and he wrote a bunch of Garth Brooks songs and stuff, but he's a great song. Yeah, Dixie Chicks, Travis Tritt, uh, a million things. You, how did you and he end up writing that song together? Well, we we had met. He's funny because he my third album. We he helped me write the first song for that. I signed a record deal with Lost Highway Records in right. two thousand six or seven, and so I, now I was on Universal. I'd been independent, and all of a sudden I had this kind of prestigious record deal and and you know the label was willie nelson and ryan adamson and so now all of a sudden i'm this new guy and and have no songs literally did not have a song to make a record with and so this i felt this real pressure and i got together with daryl i don't remember how we were put together but we wrote a song that was this really for me personal song it was an apology to my wife at the time and uh for being me Right. It was uh, just all of the stuff that I had put her through, living the life that I lived, and, and the personality that I had. And and what's that song called? It's called "Willing to Love Again." Right. And so we wrote that song, and then I ended up, you know, writing another twenty songs and, right. and making the making record. Album. And, yeah. But it like got me off the schneid and and in in the game. And so uh, we got together with Daryl and uh, th- this time around. And we always just have this. I, I did three songs on this record with him: "Sake of the Song," "The Magic Kid," uh, and "Love Don't Let Me Down." Oh, that's great! I can hear him in "Sake of the Song." Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, melodically, I can hear the yeah. influence on, in that song. I didn't realize that he wrote it with you. Yeah, that's oh, great. And so we, what we do is we'll sit down, and what I love about Daryl is just such an interesting guy. He's kind of this hippie, beatnik. Uh, you know, he's now on an eight hundred acre farm that he bought three hours outside of nashville awesome. yeah i don't really know him like i said I just i've met him a bunch of times but i i really it's just i had gotten his music on this you know cassette yeah and carried it around <laughs> forever so so sorry you guys got together this time yeah and so we just we talk i mean that's a, a lot of co-writing sessions they could be awkward affairs and with daryl we'll just sit and talk and have a coffee and spend a couple hours just catching up on our lives and so with the magic kid after a couple hours, he just said, you've been talking a lot about like your son and, uh-huh. and you seem really proud of this kind of fearlessness that he has, this ability to be himself and not conform and not worry about other people's opinions of him. And he said, that's really cool. And you seem really proud of it. And I thought, well, I am actually, I never thought to write about it. 
and and that was the fun thing you know co-writing does not always right is not always a positive experience um but one of the things that wonderful things that can happen is somebody can see what you've got inside of you and help you pull it out and with daryl he's a really honest writer he he doesn't try and couch everything and and he says you know if you have an emotion put it out there and in this case it was i'm proud of my son God damn it! I'm proud of my son, and and it was something you know. I I I sing about booze and drinking and, and, and drugging and running around and chasing women and 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 I thought I'm gonna write this song about how proud I am of my risk kid. the sentimentality, risk that you're not you know risk the chance of being sentimental or pulling yeah. those string uh, trying to pull those heartstrings. Yeah, but the song ends up not being too sentimental. I mean, the song ends up really fitting here in in this album. Was it a once you did that, did that help you figure out? Was it the same thing where it got you off the schneid for writing songs? For it really album? did because it, well, it, it gave me sort of a course, a direction because I, I really liked this song. I took it home and I played it for my son just on my iPhone and, and he cried and I cried and it was this wonderful moment for me. And, and I thought, this is the direction I want to go. Like, I, I don't want to be scared. I don't want to hide what I'm doing. I don't need to be overly clever. I, I want to just express some real emotion here. And, it was sort of, you know, the litmus test for anything else was, does it measure up, does it stand side by side with that song? That's fantastic. So you, ha- how do you, what's your process? Because you did take a long time, five years. And normally yeah. if someone takes five years between albums, uh, it, it puts so much pressure on you. Like you're, fortunately you figured out and you made your best album. What was your sort of, were you writing all along? Did you not write for those years? Like, cause as a songwriter, it seems like it'd be hard not to. Were you writing for other people? Were you co- doing a bunch of Nashville co writing Like what were you doing? A uh, little bit of everything. I mean, I've always taken a long time with my records, generally two to three years, because I, you know, I make my living on the road. So you put out a record and you go hit the road. And I hit it hard for a long time. I right. do, you know, 200 plus shows a year. And I've never found the road conducive to, to writing or being particularly creative. I would get ideas. I would get lines. I would get, you know, imagery on the road and I would jot it down. But like I needed a quiet place where I need to be in the same place for more than 24 hours to sit down and turn that craft that into an actual song. And so that always had been sort of an issue for me in the past. So, you know, I was doing that. I was, I was doing more co-writing on this. I was going up to, to Nashville a lot to write with. There's so many great writers up there and, and writing for you or are you writing, writing for me. I've never really written for anybody else. There's some movies where I've, I've written stuff specifically for, Right, a movie, but uh, I've never written specifically for another artist. And then, you know, my personal life, I, I started, uh, I got divorced and uh, my son was rapidly turning into a teenager. And and I was just, I kind of had a, a crisis of sorts in that I was, you know, my personal life was a wreck. Uh, I was trying to figure out how to be a single father and establish that relationship that that I had not maybe put the time into that I should have in the past. And then trying to figure out creatively what I wanted to do because I've been doing this for 15 years. And while it was everything that I wanted as a younger man, it wasn't working for me in, in certain it ways. It wasn't giving you the same satisfaction. It wasn't. I wasn't feeling the connection with the audience. I was not getting the high creatively. I was chasing it huh. elsewhere. And, and I was walking off stage feeling exhausted and you felt like it feels like you, you 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 sort of had this sense that there was a level of work you could be doing and you weren't doing it exactly and 
did that dawn did that dawn on you slow like did it dawn on you slowly like i uh oh i have to now chase this ambition it's fine you know jason and i have talked about this a bunch about how he made south you know for him obviously it's very dramatic he had to get sober he had to do right. all this stuff but still there was this idea of this great talent as yours was um there was tons of evidence of it all over the place you guys wrote great songs on all your albums but then there's this leap, like where people in sports talk about somebody who makes a leap. And right. it is like Jason suddenly found a way where he broke through and decided like his standard. He just raised his standard as an artist. And it does feel like you raised your standard. Was that conscious? Did you say that to anybody? Like, I'm going to go try to make my great American novel. Like, did, was it uh, Was it in your ha- – did you allow yourself to say it to anyone? Was it just like a secret you walked around with? Yeah, I don't know that I – I certainly didn't express it that way to anybody. Um, I, the way I looked at it was, I don't know if anybody's going to like this record or not. I don't know whether it's going to be a success or not. I just knew that I had to do it. That it was, for me personally and creatively, I was stuck. And I to get out of that and to kind of realize my vision for what I wanted to do and and challenge myself that I had to do this. And, and I really, I, I truly, that letting go of any of those expectations was huge for me because in the past I had always spent a lot of time thinking, well, this is people will react this way or, or we'll get this kind of response or if it does well, then this will happen to me. And, and looking ahead and, and getting away, you know, I always thought about the art and what I was doing, but there, there was just peripheral stuff that influenced me in some ways. Even when I tried to block it out, you know, sure. I mean, you know, if you well, if you write a movie script that you know if you're broke and you write a script and then it's a success, it can be life changing. And and every record I put out, it was for me, it was these were life potentially life changing things. Oh, and it yeah. can be hard to just focus on that art. And I felt like I was getting further and further away from that. There's was, a power in realizing that, right? And I, I so I sort of reclaimed my own identity yeah. and and. We're, didn't worry about expectations and the idea like, okay, I'm going to lose a bunch of fans if I put this out because they're used to maybe hooting and hollering over here or they want to laugh over here or there are all these things that, that are maybe expected of me at this point in my life, in my career. And there was, you know, there was a fear that I was going to lose all of that and just be in a coffee shop with five people, <laughs> you know, but... But I had to do that, and that was really liberating to say, you know what? If that happens, it happens. But I'll have my integrity, and I'll and I'll know that I that I challenged myself, and I didn't coast. You thought of this stuff. I mean, the song "You Leave Alone" sort of speaks to this, right? In a way, it seems like you talking to yourself about what the real stakes are. Yeah, well, it's you know those decisions that you make in life can completely completely life altering, and and I've always loved that idea of. I can think specifically to a night where I turned left down an alley and it changed my life because I, I, I was, had been kicked out of some bar in Galveston, Texas, and I was just walking home and I was like, I'm going to go down this alley, this dirty, dark alley. And I walked down there and there's this little, I hear music coming out of the alley and I look in and there's this little folk club. It's called the Old Quarter Acoustic Cafe. And I walked, I was, I'm going in there and I walk in and there's a shrine to Townsman Zant on the wall. And it turns out that it's this, legendary club and it became my home for the next five years and it was where i met all these musicians and songwriters and started touring out of what year was that that you were 1998 right 
and and it completely like changed Slade my Cleaves life. Slade's play there, like those kind of. Slade's played there. Uh, right. Ray Wiley Hubbard, songwriter- Willis so- Ramsey, songwriter- that group of songwriters. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't know that this was even a thing. I, I was doing four hours a night of covers in these beach bars and these dives, and I was just happy to be there, putting out a tip jar. And I didn't realize that people, you could write your own songs, and people would come and pay and sit there and listen to them. That you didn't have to play, right? Uh, and so you know. had that moment when you were like a kid, basically. In the yeah, late I, I 90s. felt like a kid. Yeah, uh, and then you had another version of it. Now it feels like, yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting, you know, because I like uh, I wrote this down, which is that uh, like the on first listen, you leave alone seems kind of fatalistic, but on the other hand, it feels like a call to action. And it to me, it like reflected a pattern of thought that led you to finally make the album to like to live in the present and to take the risks required. Hmm. to write the songs yeah i just like the rhymes <laughs> Bullshit. that's like such the old i, I just say uh, words i know I, 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 I play some chords and i said to say some words and no but it is like i and it's fine right none of us want to risk uh seeming pretentious but but if you're gonna write about death like uh when songwriters grapple with that with the idea that you leave alone mm-hmm it does create a kind of, if you own that, then it does sort of call you to accept, well, I better make something of the present. Yeah. That's always been a heavy on my mind since I was a very young person. And, uh, um, you know, that idea of making something of, of your life and not wasting your talents and, and uh, you know, leaving your mark. And I've struggled with it because I've always felt, no matter what I did, that I was wasting some measure of my life and and constantly trying to figure that out you know you you get one shot at life and yes. and yeah you better make the most of it yeah sorry dude this isn't serious 60 i'm not just gonna be like so hey was it fun <laughs> making the record you know y'all have a great time uh because then the next thing i wrote down was that it seemed like part of this record is about entropy and things wasting away but then there's often hope too and so i'm wondering like how often do you swing back and forth between those polls for yourself like how often does it seem like bullshit and it's hopeless and how often does it feel like no no no, i have some agency and this. like i can grab onto this i can make i can be a good dad i can li- be a good artist yeah because you can hear on the album you swinging back and forth between well everything just wastes away everything i hear echoes of like dylan oh mercy and i i, I you feel this this knowledge that it's all going away but you also feel somebody like sort of making a decision to live yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that's exactly, I think, where I was at. I mean, I, I, I struggle with it daily. I have my insecurities and my fears, and, and I'm constantly trying to find that spot of optimism and feeling, you know, capable of doing what I need to do in life and, and feeling like it's worthwhile. You know, I started a, a, a new relationship, and, and that was kind of life-changing for me, and it was a rocky period of several years uh where i i was a wreck but i've you know i i slowly put it back together and i'm in a much better place now than i was a couple of years ago um and and i was just thinking about it the other night like i'm kind of happy and and it's a really interesting thing like i i'm for for me the this idea like okay i'm i'm not stressed about this thing i used to be stressed about and i feel you know centered and able to focus on some important things and i still struggle in a lot of ways but it's been a process but i i, I say i'm 80 percent of the time in a pretty positive headspace right now whereas 
it was definitely 50-50 or 30-70 for a long time. What music have you been listening to in the last couple of years? Like what what records have you been going back to? What what's been inspiring you along this path? Oh, um he's gotten all all the credit anybody needs in one lifetime lately, but uh Jason's stuff is really uh, incredibly powerful stuff is inspiring to me. And I knew Jason, you know, he and I toured about five years ago. We did a co-headlining tour and a great band called Shovels and Rope was our opener. They and, they played that night you and I met. Yes, they were open. Yeah. And we would go back and forth and, and you know, uh, you switch co- co-headlining and, and Shovels and Rope would open every night. And then I, um, you know, I was a fan of Jason and I, I, I thought he had a great voice and he had some songs that really resonated to me as all-time great songs. But he did take that next level. I, I thought Southeastern was was a really powerful record. I like this most recent one even more. Something more than Freeze. Freaking incredible, I, too. Just, yeah. just every song on it just strikes me as a, as a master class in songwriting. And uh, uh, so I've, I've been listening to Jason a lot. Um, uh, I mean, were you listening to Tom Waits and Guy Clark? Have you listened to them in your... Uh, Life or they another oh, yeah. generation and, for you. And uh, I don't know. Guy Clark passed away this morning. What? Yeah. Oh, oh that, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, oh, that's really um, intense for me to hear. Yeah. Um, oh, he's one of the greatest songwriters. I've talked about him on here before. I really didn't know that. Yeah, he he is. Um, oh. Was absolutely. I was fortunate to get to to write with him a few times, and that was. Uh, oh, I'm experience. so sorry yeah, if you were friends with him. Oh, I I I known him, I, but I mean, he's one of the great songwriters who absolutely. ever lived, yeah. uh, and never stopped being a great songwriter. I mean, he had a song Hemingway's Whiskey five years ago. That's yeah. a great song, and he wrote. You know, you use the word desperado on your album, and uh, yeah, it was a nod. Uh, to, to me, it was a nod. To, yeah. I thought the desperado was a nod. It's uh, in the song "Good While It Lasted," yeah. and I heard that, and I knew you were shouting out to Guy Clark and yeah. that generation of guys. Yeah, and um, um, that sucks. But yeah. uh, well, who, who was I listening to? I, you know, I, I listened to Leonard Cohen. It's weird how little music I actually listen to as a songwriter. I, 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 I think no, that it's not so strange. It, 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 it can really mess me up. As a writer, because you know, I hear I hear Jason's stuff, and I think, shit, now I, now it's stuck in my head, and and it you know it changes my course, and and uh, so you know, you, mean you can I hear can, a melody, you can hear yourself not grabbing a melody like you're stealing it, but you can hear yourself grappling with it in some way. Either well, it it then I'm in his world, or I'm in another songwriter's world, and so I I, I a lot of oftentimes like stuff that has nothing to do with me stylistically that's out of the Americana genre or the, the country genre. You know, the, the stuff I, I really like is, or is generally in those genres, but I, I don't want to have those voices in my head when I'm writing because it's, I, totally I, I, I like that. to be inspired and pushed, you know, it's music's not a competition, but I like when people raise the bar and I go, okay, I see what you did there. And uh, let me see if I can, if I can match you, uh, you know, there, there, yeah, there I was is talking a, to John Moreland about this and he's like, I can listen to one, you know, I think John's a really good song. I don't know if you know his stuff, yeah, but yeah. he's a really good songwriter. And he was like, I'll listen to like one album of somebody's one time. And I'm like, right. I got that. I don't want to like bathe in it essentially. Yeah. I, keep I think it can color what, what you do if you're not careful and, and uh, take you away from your own voice and, and, your own vision. So what stokes you, what kind of fills you up as an artist? You know, what is the stuff that moves you? Is it books that you go to? Is it movies? Like how do you, yeah. what kind of art 
are you engaging with uh, on a regular basis? I know yeah. I've read about you, so I know growing up it was books a lot. It was books because um, there's like Larry McMurtry in your stuff too. You know, you and the hum- the way that humor and sadness are right next to each other. I can tell you've read Larry McMurtry yeah. at some point in your yeah. life. But like, what what are uh, you reading these days, or what are you watching? Well, um, these days I'm reading. Uh, what do I do? I'm reading Michael and Dante, Dante, yeah. uh, Anil's Ghost. Um, I just started a book, and I've forgotten the guy's last name, but it's Thomas Something's War, and it's about this Iraq veteran who was shot on his third day in Iraq and and paralyzed, and he died about ten years later. But they made a documentary about him. But uh, so, do you read mostly nonfiction stuff now? Or? Oh, it's a mix. I'm I, I really I was a history major, and so I'm really into like Eric Larson, and uh, I, I love those kind of historical. Oh, you books would write a good song with. inspired by Devil in White City. Oh man. God, what an amazing! You could book. really. What an amazingly creepy. Yeah, you could book. really write something great. Yeah, inspired by that time, the World's Fair, and everything that was happening around it. Yeah, that that's that's my favorite one of his. And uh, he wrote one about Galveston uh, called Isaac Storm. And I used I to live in Galveston, that. but it was the greatest natural disaster in American history. And and uh, anyway, an amazing story there. But, but uh, I like to, plays I mean, and theater. I've oh, been going do. to so a lot to more. Stuff. And, and uh, I, I just like to watch people live performances. So I always take my notebook along. So if it's a concert. I can't help but watch a con- get inspired when I watch a concert, and uh, and lines will come to me. Or if I go to a play, there's something about people creating their own world and watching other people's creativity that really gets me fired up. And movies is the same way. Um, I mean, it depends. You know, I just went and watched the Captain America versus Iron Man. I, I didn't get any lyrics out of inspiration. <laughs> you didn't out of that. fill the notebook. For no, that but I had a good time with my kid. You know, but but. Uh, I like people watching people examine human emotion and life and 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 use language in interesting ways and that that usually triggers something for me and whatever. Do you go back to your notebooks then? Like how does how does your writing when you get in the mode? So you wrote that song with Daryl. You're like, okay, I'm off now. Starting to write the album. Right. Are you writing every day then? Like, what's the process by which you? Not every day. I'm not a disciplined writer, and it's 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 uh, it goes back to that that feeling of wasting potential and talent. Um, you know, I, I, I try to learn all the time from people who, who are disciplined. There's a great book called daily rituals. Oh yeah. If you read that, uh-huh. it's, it's like, it's great. 200. It's got all those people from like Galileo, like all the people from the earliest times, right. how they did or do their creative. Yeah. Practice. It's everybody from, from Bronte to Freud to Strauss to, yeah. uh, you know, what their daily habits are and how they, how they, created whether exercise and what they ate and how much they drank and and their sleeping habits and if they wrote standing up and and so uh you know i study that all the time and i'm i'm you know still trying to find my formula uh that isn't just reliant on a burst of inspiration um but but basically uh, it's burst of inspiration yeah you know i I don't uh write every day i i try i'm trying to be more disciplined and i am more disciplined now than i have been in the past but uh how long did it take you to write the album from when I know five years, but from when you wrote that song with Daryl and you were starting, yeah, uh, it was about two years, right? I, I think that's about right. From uh, I got yeah, but no songs time. feel. I mean, it's worth it. No songs feel like they're on there by accident. I'll tell you. Well, I left a lot off. You know, there was there was a lot of things that you know as I went through and tried to make it. There there are songs that I think people would like, but they just did not. They were not reflective of of what I was trying to get across. How here. have these songs been? So you were worried about what would happen in a roadhouse. So how have these songs been received now at your shows? It's gone great so far. I mean, we just kind of started the tour this month, but uh, and are doing more of the theater listening room 
type thing. Although, I mean, uh, having said that, we played a lot of, you know, rock clubs and played the horseshoe in Toronto the other night. It was just, just bedivy as they come. And, um, and did you play a set list that had a lot of these songs? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do most of the new record and, and they're going, it's going over surprisingly well. You know, it feels like the crowd is singing along or at least appreciative of this stuff. And, 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 and I'm, I feel like it's connecting in a way that I, it's what I wanted. I didn't really expect it to happen, you know, but I, I'll, I'll start playing it and, and, I feel this sort of murmur and this energy of appreciation and excitement. And that's such a great feeling. Uh, Cause I, I had felt like I was just phoning it in every night and it was like, here's the songs. I know this is what you want to hear and this is what I'm going to do. And, and I'd gotten away from this feeling of connection with the audience. And I, I feel like I'm back there again. I, like I walk off stage refreshed and, and like, I know exactly what happened. I'm not hammered on the stage. I'm not having to get my highs elsewhere. I, I can get it right there in that moment by connecting with people. And that's been a really powerful and wonderful thing for me. It's made, it's validated the decision to, to make this record. Well, that's awesome. And that's a great uh, note on, wh- on which to end a powerful and, and wonderful thing, which is what this uh, album Lovers and Leavers is. Uh, I've uh, been listening to it nonstop since I got it. And you really did it, man. You stepped up and you just made you made the great album. And uh, it's Thank just, you. I'm, I can hear how good you feel about it. And i um, glad that it's connecting on the road. People should go out and see you. They should download the album legally and uh, <laughs> go pay a couple bucks and, and see you on the road. And um, I'll see you next time on The Moment. Thanks. Thanks.